Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Jeff Teagues, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Paul, thank you. I think we all believe we're at the center of the universe, so it's uh, it's nice for you to verify that we are actually right now at the center of the universe. This very moment, we're at the center of the universe. That's right. Uh, Jeff, great to connect to you. I appreciate your service in a multitude of ways, which I'd love to explore all of those ways that you serve uh, your country and your fellow man. Uh, but let, let's start at the beginning. Where are you from, Jeff? I'm from Wisconsin. So there's a little town outside of Milwaukee called Pewaukee. It's a suburb. And that's where I grew up. My mom and dad still live in the same house that uh, that I grew up in with my brother and sister. And I think it was a typical 70s, 80s, Midwestern childhood. Um, absolutely set the kind of tone and condition for the person I am. Um, and then layered a bunch of military stuff on top of that after I after I left. You and I are about the same age. I imagine you spent your childhood in similar ways that I did. Parents had no idea where you were unless you were in school or at church. You know, it's funny because like what we've this has come up with my mom a few times and she's like, oh, I knew where you were. And of course, they probably knew a little bit more. But but then there are things like I used to jump the train and ride it to my friend's house. You know, like I used to, we used to get on our bikes and like ride 25 miles to like three towns over. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't, I don't think my mom actually knew where, where we were, but uh, dude, yesterday it was, it was uh, my, my son, he, his fiance has two children that are nine and 11. And so there were Jules and I are like grandparents and uh, his, his fiance Heidi was, was, there was a problem. The kids left on their bikes and they were supposed to come back with a box of something. And, and, she, and Heidi says to Aaron, well, how are they going to do it? How are they going to get back? They've got to carry that box. And Aaron said, they'll, they'll figure it out. And Paul, I I, that, I, 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 I heard me like it was me. I, I can't tell you how many times my wife and I were talking about our kids. And I was like, honey, it'll be OK. They'll yeah. they'll figure it out. So it's nice to see some of that old school idea. Where are the kids? I don't know, but they'll be back sometime soon. You know? Yeah, they'll, they'll be fine. And in fact, I don't know if it was intentional for your parents or mine, but it, it made us really independent, right? I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think so. Um, I think independent and confident. And, and you had that network of friends that you just really could trust. Um, and, and, and a bunch of those guys, they're my friends today. It's very cool. Yeah, it's absolutely cool. Yeah, I, I have really deep, long relationships with guys that uh, I knew when I was six, seven, eight years old. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I went 25 miles away from home. I did go into a storm drain one time, and there's no way my parents knew I was in that storm drain. <laughs> we had a we had a train track that ran behind our house. And, you know, we a, a buddy of mine lived about 10, 12 miles away. And uh, the train track went right near his house. So we, we figured out how we how and when we could jump the train instead of riding our bikes. Uh, and we got it. We got away with it a few times. And then there was that one time where the train was going too fast. And uh, we had to call home and say, hey, mom, we're in like two towns over. Can you come get us? So you, you get your you know, you get grounded for a week and then you're back at your shenanigans. Right. It's just the, the way to live. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So when you were in, say, middle school, high school, what did you gravitate to uh, in your spare time or, or, or within the school framework? Were you academically yeah. inclined, an athlete? 
you know, I, I've, I've always been a reader. You know, I think that's one of those things like you, you talk about these things when you were seven or eight. You know, like I, I, I play Jeopardy today and I'm telling you half of the Jeopardy answers that I know are things that I learned when I was in grade school. You know, what? who was Magellan? Who was Francis Drake? Who did this? What year was this? You know, they, I, I, I just remember being very interested in, in reading when I was young. Um, I enjoyed school, but I certainly wouldn't consider myself an academic. I just did enough to get by. Uh, sport was always important. I played every sport possible. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, I ran a, it, there was a one and a half mile race that, that the high school would put on. So I went to a private school. I went to a, a Lutheran school. So that was the other thing why, when I talk about driving and fly, and uh, riding bikes and all that, our, our friends were all over the place because we would commute to these, to these uh, Christian schools, these Lutheran schools. And the Wisconsin Lutheran High School, where I ended up going, that was in Milwaukee. The, uh, they, they had a grade school cross country meet. And as a seventh grader, I think I took second and began to be mentored by the coach of the high school team. And then in eighth grade, I either took second again or won. There was always a couple of good guys. So it really, it, it, it steered my life away from soccer and some of these other physical sports to endurance and running. And, uh, I've been a, been a runner ever since. Um, and, and became a competitive runner, you know, in the, in the military, I ran in college. Uh, and then after I had, we had our sons, they didn't get into endurance sports. They got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which we introduced them to. So uh, for the last 10, 12 years, I've been really focused on Brazilian jiu-jitsu and the running has taken, taken a back seat. So if I had to pick two sports, it would be uh, long distance running and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, not necessarily Two things that are all that complimentary, but definitely uh, things that 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 drive me and I'm passionate about. They require uh, you have to be in excellent shape to do both of those, uh, and you have to be pretty darn tough too, right? Yeah, I think I I, I think that I think that toughness and, and that mental toughness, you know, and and as as I've gone through my journey in jujitsu, and, and I'm looking at like you know what do I give back to the sport as a as a as a mid fifty year old black belt, you know like what 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 do I give back to the sport? And I think it's some of those things that I learned in endurance running, and you know, and back when I was younger, is that is that mental fortitude and how to calm yourself down and go to a place where you feel comfortable, even though uh, the world seems to be whizzing around you. So I, I'm, I've definitely tried to blend the two major things. And I would say mental, mental fortitude and the ability to focus was what, what has come out of both of those sports for me. Very cool. Yeah. I, I'm i uh, I've run many a two mile run as part of the uh, army physical fitness. Um, and I, I, the, the guys that are really fast, the guys that are running like the, the 11 minute, two miles, I've, I've seen faster. I'm sure you've seen a bunch of guys run really fast. Like, I, I'm like, I don't know how you're doing that. I don't understand the physiology involved. None of it makes any sense to me. Yeah. Well, but Paul, that's one of those things. Again, that's sort of kind of where my identity came. I was a sub 10 minute two miler for the army PT test. So if you, if you've ever met that guy, you know, it, it was just who I was. So, you know, back, back when I was first in the military, I, 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 I joined when I was 17, you know, in the late eighties, it really was about running and rucking. So the, the the fact that I was naturally inclined to that and had already been building towards that capacity for four or five years, it opened a lot of doors, you know, and that's one of the things when, when, when I mentor young men or women that are going into the military, you know, that, that physical fitness piece 
it's it's so important because it opens doors for you. It allows you to stand out in a way that other people won't. And as a you know a leader in the military, it, it it's something that I always looked at because it, it demonstrated to me that this individual had had discipline and and a commitment that I could that I could count on. So yeah, being physically fit to me in the military was always a key ingredient. Um, and then of course, as, as time went on and my career went on and wars went on that endurance base of being able to really keep your wits about you day in and day out, wait week in and week out months, m- months of planning and operating in, in combat environment, that endurance mentality was, was huge. I think the, um, I think the army has gone in the at 100% wrong direction with the way they evaluate physical fitness now, um, somehow, some way, people have convinced the army that there's it's it's the necessity to be to be the short explosive movements. So they're they're lifting heavy weights and they're doing really kind of short movement stuff. And I'll tell you, in in 20 years of combat, I, I was never not strong enough or not fast enough. It was it was the endurance that would pile on. Um, so yeah, I I think we really need to relook what it is we're emphasizing and those long, slow miles of slog and mental discipline, man, that's, that's putting money in the bank. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you that that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and, and by the way, you can do, you can do both. You can do endurance and quick burst things, but uh, you, you should not replace quick burst or, or quick action with uh, endurance. Yeah. No regrets for endurance. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, you know, and I, I remember jumping into a war story for you already. You know, I remember some ops that we did in Afghanistan was out when, when I was with the unit and we, we would bring in, we'd, we'd have some of these range, young rangers come in with us and be like a, a quick reaction force or a support by fire element or something to that effect. Now, admittedly, they were carrying some of the heavy stuff, right? Like they were carrying machine guns or mortars or things that we didn't didn't necessarily carry, you know, because we were on the, the counterterrorism fight. But I, I can't tell you how many ops I've been on where we, you know, I, I'm in my 40s, you know, that half of us are in our 40s and we're, we end up carrying the, the gear for these for these young men that are in their early 20s and still in their teens because we're just these these seasoned endurance athletes. Um, and that has, man, I will I will fall on my sword on that all day. Like in, endurance is, is the number one thing that that a an infantryman, you know, to me, any soldier but definitely an infantryman or a special operations soldier needs to, needs to lean on hundred percent. Yeah, no doubt. All right. So let's go back to the, uh, when, how old were you when you knew you wanted to join the military? Man, it, it happened like that. I, you know, I, I always played army again, just like you were talking, we probably grew up the same, you know what I mean? Putting on mud and dirt and charcoal on your face and, you know, world war two movies. And then the, you know, some of the, the, you know, the John Wayne movies and you played guns and war and BB gun wars. And you know, you, you just did that. I always enjoyed it, but I, I never really identified as that was a, a, a choice or, or a profession. And, you know, I, I'd like to meet some of these people someday, you know, like that, that recruiter. So a recruiter came to Wisconsin Lutheran high school and he was talking about the, the military and the army. And I just went and talked to him and he's, and, and he was talking about Ranger, no, not Rangers yet, special forces and what you can do. And back at that time, kind of like, excuse me, kind of like today, you could enlist directly into a special forces reserve unit, you know? Mm-hmm. So I knew the green berets from John Wayne. I didn't know what it was I was going to do as I was moving towards um, graduating. Like, like your first question, I had good grades, but they weren't scholarship grades. 
I was a good runner, but they weren't scholarship level times. So I was, I was kind of on my own. And I thought um, joining the Green Berets would be a fascinating adventure. So I, I didn't really identify as a soldier at all. I just thought it would be an adventure. And then when I got into basic training is when I, I began to understand, oh, oh yeah, you're, you're going to go to a reserve Green Beret unit, but you're just you're a support guy. You don't you don't do anything of interest until you go to through the Q course and do all these things. But there's this thing called Rangers, which I'd never heard about. So once I learned about Rangers, um, I immediately switched over. And that's where I really kind of broke my teeth in the military was at a, at a place called Ranger Indoctrination Program. They call it the Ranger Assessment and Selection Program now. But after basic training and after airborne school, um, you go to that assessment program to become a Ranger. And that's really where I made the decision to be a soldier. Um, but even then, Paul, I, I didn't really look at it as my profession. It was an adventure. I loved it. We used to call them lifers. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a lifer. I didn't want to, you know what I mean? That kind of thing and uh, decided to have a break in service and go to college. And then as I was in college, I really realized how much the military life fit me. Again, this balance of just enough smarts, but not too smart, you know, enough of life experience, but not jaded or, or, or naive, a physicality that, was, that, that, would, that lent itself towards a, a soldier. Um, and then I began to look at this uh, intellectual side of how do, you, how do you make warfare Better. How, how do we make better soldiers? How do we make better teams? How can we create a better Ranger, a better Special Forces guy? And then, of course, uh, Delta Force was always on my radar to me as, as the pinnacle. Um, and then that decision came to come back in and make it a career. But to, to, but to very specifically answer your question, I, I was probably in eight to 10 years as an officer before I really decided it was my profession. You know, like it was that was what I that was what I was going to do. And um, I think I was I went to the Naval War College for grad school. That was where it really was solidified as this is this is my profession. That's just my identity or my hobby or my my thirst for adventure. But, but this is my profession. Um, and even though I'm not a soldier anymore, I'm retired. I, I still see my profession as a as a soldier, as a defender, as somebody who lives the motto of special forces, which is the oppressed libera of free the oppressed. So um, again, to go back to your question, I don't think I really realized it was my profession and it was who I was until I was probably in my, my early thirties. So you enlisted and your first stint was what, four years, five years? Uh, I ended up doing five years. Yep. Five years in the first range battalion, uh, break in service. And then lo and behold, I, I was running times that were scholarship worthy. It just wasn't, it wasn't apparent to me. So I ended up getting scholarships to run. Uh, I, I first started at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington because my wife and I were first battalion is it's in Savannah, Georgia. So we, we fell in love with the Southeast. A friend of mine that I ended up doing scuba school. That's why I did five years. I, I extended for a year to, to, to be able to do scuba school. And that had to be on my contract. So actually, the friend I went to scuba school with, he introduced us to Wilmington, which is a beautiful town, Wrightsville Beach. Um, and I decided to, to give a shot at, uh, at university there. And then uh, after a couple years of school and racing, I went out west to train and try to get to that next level of a Division One athlete. And we uh, I fell in love with Montana and ended up transferring out to Montana State. And then that's where I 
finished out my career as an athlete, as a student, and joined ROTC there and got commissioned through their program. So it's a uh, UNC Wilmington has a place in my heart, but Montana State is really where I where I uh, call my alma mater. And, and what were you running? What events? Distance. So five k, ten k is what I ran. Um, so when I when I went to university uh, to high school in Wisconsin, it just so happened a couple of guys came in that were just better, right? Like you know, I, I mean, I, I'm running. I think low tens is the two mile times that I'm running in high school. They're running mid nines. You know, University of Wisconsin back then was the number one long distance school in the, in the in America. I mean, it was you know they were multiple time uh, cross country uh, championship school. So I, I had this idea of collegiate running, just something that was beyond me, you know. So when I went to UNC Wilmington, I was fit through the military. Like I said, I was I was running Army two mile times in the low tens or under ten, and I was I was again. This is this is 1992. Triathlons are still new. I'm 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 kind of making a run at being a triathlete, and uh, I went to the the uh, coach at UNC Wilmington. And said, "Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm. My my desire is: Can I train with you guys? Do you do you take walk-ons just to just to get the training?" And he said, "Yeah, sometimes by exception, but why don't you come to this time trial and we'll kind of see where you stand." And I ended up taking like second or third in the time trial, which which you know my again my idea of, of collegiate racing was way above what I could do. There's a lot of room in D1 for all of us, right? You, you know, you don't, you don't have to be the an Olympian to be able to run D1. So it really changed my life, um, and and I had I and I I, I don't want to be too dramatic, but it changed my life. But I think in some ways it, it may have saved it as well because I found a team of people. I was already married, um, and I think it saved me from getting stuck in the college life and the partying and the drinking. And you know, I I had a mission. I, I had to race every weekend. You know, and. Um, when you run long distance, you run cross country in the fall, indoor season in the winter, and then outdoor track in the summer. And then you train or in the in the you know spring summer, and then you train all summer. So you you have a year long focus where you kind of have to keep your nose clean. And I think that that probably really helped me with that transition from being a soldier uh, and then being a student, having that mission and vision and, and camaraderie with a, a bunch of other guys. Uh, is that what led you to do ROTC? You know, I think again, those man, I I I need to line all these guys up because these these people had incredible impact in my life, and I don't even know who they are, right? I, you know, so there there was a guy at 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 uh, Montana State who knew my background, you know, and I, that I had rangered, and he asked me to come help train their cadets on this thing called a ranger challenge on how to, on how to do orienteering and navigation and rucking and shooting and all the, all these skills, because th those were things that I had done. He asked me to come help just train his team. And that son of a gun, he, he was, he, he had me hook, line and sinker. Cause as soon as he had me in the woods, you know, I had a beard and I was running and I had, you know, I was studying psychology and, 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 and thinking I was going to, you know, move on as a psychologist, et cetera. But once I started training these young soldiers and realizing that I had, I had been given a, a bunch of information and experience that I wanted to share. I, I slowly but surely kind of got reeled in. Um, and again, the, the, the guy that ran the program, 
he was super clever. He's like, hey, why don't you just give it a shot? Come on in, sign up for the 400, sign, you know, like the senior level class. Sign up, sign up for the leadership classes with the seniors. You know what I mean? And just, just kind of see what it is. You, you, you're going to have something to offer. So I, you know, I'm, I'm an, I, I'm in ROTC, but I'm not right. Again, I had a beard. I, I really had nothing to do with it, except that they were talking about and doing things that, that I missed. You know, and then around that same time frame is when I. A friend of mine um, let me know that Delta was was accepting soldiers that had corrective eye surgery. That's why I didn't stay in for it. I did my eyes weren't correctable at the time to what Delta required. So when I realized that the unit was was taking guys that had the surgery, and I realized that 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 dream of mine opened back up, then ROTC was my path. Straight back as an infantryman, straight back to the Rangers. And the quickest way I could get into the unit, if uh, if all the stars and moons aligned, I was I was ready for it. Yeah. Uh, did you go to advance camp? Oh, of course. Yeah. Did you yeah. go to brag? No, it was so it was at Fort Lewis. I I don't know if it is now, but back then I think there was one at Bragg and one at Fort Lewis. Um, so ours was at Fort Lewis. But these are it, it, it's interesting how all these things come about. So I was a first first ranger battalion ranger down in Savannah, and I, and I loved it. And I didn't think much of second or third. I you know just didn't really cross my mind. But after spending the summer at advance camp up at Fort Lewis, I, I fell in love with the place. I mean, I just you know the summers at in Tacoma, Washington are amazing. And because I was running, the cadre there would kind of kind of look the other way they gave me permission but it was you know where I, i'd be able to run in the evenings so when the when the advance camp day was done they allowed me to get outside of the compound and and run and train and uh, are you familiar with that up in that area that little town called stillicum do you know I've, I've never been there oh there's this there's this little town called stillicum and i would run up over the hills and down in this town in stillicum and i, I would carry some change with me because you know it was, it was uh you, you weren't allowed to call home or if you did, it was, you were in this long line, but I would, I would take advantage of the fact that the cadre was letting me run. So I'd run into this town of Stillicum and call my wife. And I, and I remember saying to her, I was like, Hey, we're going to live in Stillicum and I'm going to come to second range of Britannia. And this is where we'll, we'll raise our boys. And uh, lo and behold, again, with a little bit of, of blessing from God, a little bit of luck and maybe a little bit of cheat stealing and lying. Um, we ended up at Fort Lewis living in Stillicum and that's where, that's where I kicked off uh, my career as, a, as an officer. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, you at advance camp as a guy who was enlisted in the Ranger Regiment. I remember going through advance camp with a guy who was, uh, I think he got out as an E6, went to college, went through ROTC. Advance camp just seemed really, really easy for him. Yeah. And it, it you know, it, it, it was. But again, I think it was it was one of those things where you – I mean, I, I I tried to mentor the guys that took it seriously and and tried to help the others. Like, hey, this isn't this, don't take it so seriously. You know, what I mean, like some people, like this is this is this is part of your journey. You know, and when you look back on it, oh, I loved it. I have nothing but fond memories. And 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 like we were talking about, Paul, you, I, you know, you, these friends that you have, I have friends that I bump into from advance camp. You know, any anytime shared suffering, you you know that that creates bonds that are hard to break. Yeah, it's funny. I one of my buddies uh, was in First uh, Ranger Battalion, and he always said, "It's first for a reason." Were they saying that when you were going through? They they were, and you know, I would say there's a there's a legend 
and maybe it's true, you know, because when they first set up the Ranger Battalions, they, they, it was only the two, it was 1st and 2nd Battalion. And they said that a bunch of the, like the Rangers, the Ranger Company guys from Vietnam and the Lurse guys from Vietnam, they stood up the 1st Ranger Battalion. And the Special Forces guys uh, and some of the Mac VSOG type from Vietnam, they stood up the 2nd Ranger Battalion. Oh. So they have these two very different personalities you know third came along afterwards so no no, no one's ever going to argue that third is better than first or second right but uh but that's exactly what i found and i, and I don't know there was a time like i was in uh first range battalion from 87 to 92 and then i got to second ranger battalion in 97 so some things had changed you know there was a little bit of time in between there but i definitely found the second ranger battalion a very different experience much more much more open to kind of freedom of thought, much more kind of special forces oriented with kind of taking ideas from all sorts of people. It wasn't, it wasn't as regimented as it was in first battalion. I mean, in first battalion, it, it, it was lockstep. Everybody was expected to, everything was the same. Everything on your uniform was the same. Everything in your rucksack was the same. And there's a reason for that, you know, in combat, if I'm going into your ruck, I need to know where your ammo is or your medical or anything. I mean, there, there's a reason. Um, but I liked the mentality of second battalion. It just fit me. And then obviously with my career path into special forces next and then Delta, that, that way of, of building teams and leadership was, was, it just, it just fit me better. So it's, it's hard to say I have had, I have never had any bad experiences with, with any of these, these Rangers. I mean, I, I told you that story about, you know, the, the fitness level. Um, but I'll tell you another story. It was, I think it was probably 2005, 2006. Uh, it was in, in the height of the war. Those were, those are some tough years for us, you know, um, 05, 06, the, we soft lost a lot of guys on the Rangers and in Delta. And I got into a vehicle one day um, and it, there was a bunch of Rangers in there and I'm this old guy. I mean, how old am I? And I guess I'm 40 at the time ish. And I'm looking across at, and looking at all these young Rangers. And it, it dawned on me that this kid was in high school like 18 months prior. And now he's in combat with me. Like when I, when I joined the Rangers, there wasn't a war on the, on the horizon. Like the, these young men and women were joining the military and going to the Rangers from 2001 until present day, knowing full well they're, they're going to combat. You know, and then even even more so, these guys towards the end in 2011, 2012, 2013, not only are they going to combat, they're going to combat in wars that America doesn't care about. And we're not even really trying to win. You know, so I'll, I'll never forget those experiences because I am not that guy who looks at this younger generation and, and is like, oh, we're in trouble. I, I don't think we are. You know, I, I have I have a lot of confidence in this next generation. They're just they're just different than us. But I think many of them are just as committed and patriotic and courageous as we ever wanted to be. Yeah, they're, they're, they're just not all over social media talking about it, right? I agree. I, I 100% agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to take a chance here. So you went to Desert Storm, I take it, with First Ranger? I, y yes and no. I, I did, but we didn't do much. Yeah. The, yeah. But, but I was there, yes, as a Ranger in Desert Storm. Yeah. So my buddy was with First Ranger Battalion. Uh, for Desert Storm, uh, a guy named Mike Stockhausen. Does that name ring a bell? Oh, it, it does ring a bell. So I think it was, 
it was one company, it was B or C company that went for a while and then part of a company. And then the rest of us came along for this show of force mission. Um, so he was probably in an, in another company. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. yeah. Good, good guy. He ended up uh, retiring as a command sergeant major. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Really? What, what, what year did he retire? Uh, he retired about three and a half years ago, maybe four years oh, ago. Stockhausen. Oh, I'm yeah. sure I've, I've come across him then, man. If he was in that long, Holy cow. He, he's, uh, he's an amazing guy. Did he ranger for a long time? Nah, he, he did the ranger thing for uh, maybe four or five years. Okay. He, act he actually joined when he was, I think he was 24. Oh, no kidding. He did the six year college thing right after high school. Yeah. Was, yeah. We'll probably need to get my act together. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it's one of those things, because, you know, going back to that running, because because I, I was such a fast runner, a lot of people know me from those days just be, yeah. just because of that. You know, so like if you said, hey, do you know, you, do you remember Ranger Teagues? He could run fast at first Ranger Field. Like, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. You know, so that's, a, that's, that's one of those things, a throwback for many, many years ago. Yeah, you know you're really, really fast at distance uh, if you're no, at first Ranger Battalion, it's the fast guy. Well, you know, the – the. Uh, yeah. And again, it, it, it opened doors, you know, like even as an officer, because, of course, as an officer, I, I came out of I have come up as an officer five years of collegiate racing also. You know what I mean? So, you, you know, you'd have those banner days and things like that, you know, so so I would run and, you know, they, they have a 5K race and then a 10K race and then a rough run or something. And I would I would win all of those, you know, again, because I had five years of Division One collegiate training behind me. You know what yeah, I mean? But still, still. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it again, it, it builds you that name that you can either be a, a jerk about or, you know, you can you can just kind of capitalize on it to, to help others along. So it was it was fun. You mentioned scuba. What was the hardest thing that you did at scuba? Oh, man, you know, I, I'll, uh, I'll I'll come back to answering the question, but specifically. But what what scuba school did to me was it changed my perception of special forces. Because, you know, with, with the Rangers, we were talking with 1st Battalion, we were so lockstep. I mean, dude, you if you had a bootlace poking out, you were, you know, that was a cardinal sin. If you had a, a pocket unbuttoned, I mean, everything, you know, when you were back in garrison, you were you were just there was a, a model. Um, and when whenever I would see special forces guys, they're walking around with their boots on blouse, you know, mix and match uniform, pockets undone. So it was it was just this mind blowing thing of that's not what a professional soldier looks like. Right. Um, I didn't understand. It was just a different way of, of looking at your roles and your position. So I had a, I really thumbed my nose at special forces. I, I thought that I thought they were dirtbags. And then when I went down to scuba school, I, it was the most physically demanding and bland of intellectual, like the, 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 the coursework that you had to do to understand the dive tables and all of the things of, of charts and all that. It was, it was an absolute incredible combination of, of the kind of challenge that I liked and they didn't smoke you. It wasn't their, it wasn't their ethos. No one was yelling at you. It was, it was a level of professionalism that I hadn't seen before. And it really opened my eyes to what special forces really was and, and could be. And, it, and, it, and it, it, it put a spark in my mind of like, Oh, maybe special forces is something I want to do. Um, and then I guess there's, there's a number of things when you talk about the hardest, uh, physically, I had a hard time uh, treading water with that heavy weight. Like, and that's an early thing. You know what I mean? Like to me, on a, in my mind, when I passed that, which I think you do on the first day, you know, as part of these tests, 
Like I knew if I could pass that, I was on my way. It was just something I couldn't quite, quite develop. Uh, but the other thing, it's interesting because I, I haven't thought about this in a long time. And it, and it wasn't, it wasn't like hard or it, like I, you know, emotionally, but we lost a guy. We, wow. we had a guy that had a heart attack on a, on one of the, uh, the underwater swims and he died and we had a, we had a funeral for him. Um, and again, I was so young, it, it didn't really impact me in a, in a sadness, you know what I mean? But it impacted me in a reality of, oh, there are some higher stakes here that I might recognize or understand. Like you, you can die in this job just through the training, you know, um, man, I haven't thought about that in a long time. So, uh, yeah, uh, you, you know what I mean? I, I, I actually feel bad about that man now. Cause I'm, I mean, back then you're young, you don't think about the fact that he left people behind in a family and all that. Um, but, well, but I'll never forget it as, Hey, you could really get hurt or die just trying to be a ranger or trying to be a special forces guy or being in, in the unit and, and, and making that conscious decision that it was worth it to me. It, it I'll, I'll, you know, you, there's that, that saying of I'll make it or I'll die trying. I, that was real for me. I was like, I, I'll die trying, you know? Yeah. It's uh it's a powerful attitude to have. Yeah. I, I imagine it served you quite well throughout your, your adulthood. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I think that was, uh, you know, now that I'm, I like doing podcasts like this and talking with folks because you, you're actually, you actually pull things out that I haven't really put together or, or you know what I mean? Or even, you know, I don't, you don't, I don't spend that much time looking backwards like that, right. but you know, that was a pivotal time um, where, where I realized that. And then the, the, the same thing happened in 93 when I got out, I, I, I would have could have been on a mission where a bunch of helos went down up in Antelope, Antelope Lake, Utah, and, and a bunch of, a bunch of people died and, and uh, our battalion commander died, a, a, an NCO named Harvey Moore, who was a legendary, just super ranger. And he had taken me under his wing and was, was a mentor that I looked up to. So it, it reiterated that you can you can die doing this, and then as as the wars went on, you know I m- I remember making a, a decision somewhere along the line, probably in two thousand eight ish, that it didn't matter to me if we were going to win the wars. Like I fight, that's what I do. I, I take people in and out of combat uh, to fight the enemy that's in front of me. You know, and the and the resources that I'd been given as a special forces guy or a guy in Delta, part of my job was to protect these other soldiers, you know, the Marines and the, and the, uh, the, the regular army guys that were living on these fobs out in the middle of nowhere. I'm able to fly around with all the high tech equipment and all the, all the support technology that you can even dream of. So my, my job was to kill the, the enemy in front of me and to protect these soldiers, Marines and airmen that, that had to live on that ground. Um, and I, I think those were all threads that, that connected over time. Yeah. All right. So when you got commissioned out of RTC, did you, did you know you, you were going to be uh, on the green break path? No, I knew I was going to be a ranger coming back, coming back to, uh, so I, I you know, second ranger battalion. I, I knew I was going to be working there. And then um, I was trying to find my fastest route to get to try to go to the or officer is qualified to go to Delta they have to have what's considered a, a, a company command. So that's either in charge of a company in the regular infantry or their equivalent. 
And the equivalent of that in special forces is an operational detachment. But before you become an operational detachment commander, you've got like a year and a half or two years of training. So it was a little bit of a slower path. But Big Army decided back then that if you were a light infantry lieutenant, you were going to be a heavy infantry captain, which means you were going to be working in mechanized. So if you were light infantry, now you were going to go to some mechanized unit, which meant that was I wasn't going to ranger as a captain. I would have to go somewhere and get in a Bradley armored vehicle or a, you know, a tank or something like that. And just really didn't interest me. So part part of my decision to step out of light infantry was because of the, the necessity that the army was saying I'd have to go heavy. But also there was always this idea in my mind of exploring this this profession of special forces. Um, so that was the decision I made with a good friend of mine. We, we both went in together and never looked back. And uh, SFAS, what, what was that like? That was three weeks long. When I went through, it was, it was, I think special forces is well known for its team week because that, that, that's, that's the thing where you spend a week problem solving and suffering as a team. And they're really evaluating how you're able to work together as a team. We had very, very little, we didn't really have a team week. We had these team events. It, when I went through specifically, it was very, very individual where you were, you were on your own. You were rarely with other people. And that's that's really what the what Delta Force's selection is like. Is you're alone. They're really they're really measuring you as an individual and how you're able to work in an in an ambiguous environment. Um, and then they the operator training course is how they really look at how you work with teams and how you come together as a team. Um, so that the 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 window that I went through SFAS it was very independent. Um, and I'm not saying it was hard or it wasn't easy. It was just, it was a lot of um, land navigation and I was good at land navigation. Again, I was good at the rucking and all of that. So I, I enjoyed the experience. You know, I, all of the assessments and selections that I've gone through, I've enjoyed the experience. I've enjoyed the challenge. It's just that, it's just that looming fear of if you fail, if you screw up, you're not going to be able to go to this unit. And then what's next? That's the thing that's always hanging over you. But um, again, as we've been talking about my life, I, I, I've just been blessed to have this body that can just can just do do things to kind of free me up to to worry about other stuff that other people that are really struggling with carrying the weight or making the movement or or that type of thing they get preoccupied with that. I've been I've been lucky in that respect. How, how long were you a Green Beret before you tried Delta? Not very long. So the um, after after I was went through the Q course. I got to 10th group, I think in the fall of 2002, late summer, fall of 2002, the war kicked off in March of 2003. So we were on the ground. I deployed forward with 10th group before the war kicked off. We were on the ground for a little while up in, up in uh, Northern Iraq, Kurdistan. Um, and then it was in 2005 that I tried out for the unit. So yeah, three, three years and almost I mean, the majority of that was deployed, I, you know, in, in my three years at 10th group, I can do some quick math. Eight, I, I did about two years deployed. So wow. I, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I did a long eight monther. I did a five monther, a four monther, an eight monther, um, all, all with 10th group. So while I love 10th group, um, and I consider myself a 10th grouper, 
I, I don't really know much about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or the people like you'll meet a guy and you're like, do you know this guy from 10th group? It's like, man, I, I knew my ODA. And that was largely it because we were, you know, we were deployed forward in, in Iraq, distributed all across um, the country. Did you interact with the Kurds a lot? A lot. Yeah. And, and um, so from the start, I mean, when we, the reason we were in, in Iraq, Kurdistan prior to the start of the war was to build that coalition. So 10th group, um, you know, they had been involved almost nonstop from Desert Storm. You were talking about Desert Storm. So they had been working with the, the Kurds for a long time. I think it was called Operation Provide Comfort. So there was a, a longstanding relationship with the Kurds. Um, so our job in, in prior to the invasion was building that coalition between the two factions of the Kurds, the, the PUK and the KDP. PUK is over on the west, uh, the KDP, or vice versa. PUK is on the east, KDP is on the west. Um, and, and ensuring that 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 pet, those Peshmerga forces would help us fight Saddam's forces. So it was a straight up special forces mission in the beginning. You know, we infilled, we were by through and with um, the, uh, the the Kurds. You know, there's the there's the people know about the horse charge in Afghanistan, you know, with the with the horse soldiers. I mean, we didn't have anything that dramatic, but, you know, we were riding horses and donkeys and mules and, and, and moving the men and equipment and supplies and these and these these ramshackle ferries to get across rivers to to put to put this offense against the divisions the Iraqi divisions that were up north. Now that was coupled very heavily with uh, B two bombers and B fifty twos and stealth bombers. So believe me, we we had the we had the upper hand. But I definitely got my feel of this old school you know, frontal line, this is the front, this is the forward line of troops, this is no man's land, you know, and and let's fight. And the Kurds, I mean, they have a special place in my heart. You know, I, I still I still go back and forth to Iraq uh, with, with what I do now with the counter sex trafficking, I've been trying to help them with 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 trying to bring an awareness on that and and some more empowerment and freedom to the to the women and, and underprivileged in that region. So yeah, I, 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 I love the Kurds. Um, if you could make me president back then, I would have declared Kurdistan its own country, or if not the 51st state of America. That probably, I, if I if I had that power, they'd be the 51st state of the United States. Um, and 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 I think we could have we could have left that region feeling a little bit more satisfied with at least taking care of our partners. Yeah, the Kurds. Uh, I interacted with uh, Shia Sunni and and Kurds, and I absolutely adore the Kurds. They, yeah. they are they are great people. I I enjoyed every time I interacted with them. Yeah. Well, great. it's it's interesting because you know it's one it's one of these things where when you, when you study psychology or linguistics or neurology or any of these things, and and you 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 take Kurds and Arabs for example, like th there's a there's a genetic disposition of Arabs to, to think a certain way. It's like, a, it's like a circular line of reasoning. Like their, their humor is different, you know, like the, the Kurds are there. They're, they're almost like a, like a Western thought. And I think part of that is genetic, you know, part of that is, is very, very old, but part of that is, is because they've been a, a, a group of people without a country they they've been educated all over the world. So they're much more secular and kind of Western thought. So I, I think it's funny. You, I almost feel bad that like we like people that are like us right like when i tell a joke and you laugh at it i like you you know what i mean but you you're only going to laugh at my joke if you understand the linear process of, of, of my of my humor you know what i mean 
and I, I've had plenty of, of Arab friends and, and work with the Arabs as well, but it, but it, but it, it's a, it's a harder relationship because we just, we just see the world so differently from a historical tribal, familial linguistic perspective, you know, and yeah. the Kurds are, um, yeah, they're just, yeah, they're, they're just an easy, fun, loving, courageous group of humans. I love them. Yeah. They're, they're, they're tough people too. Is my, yeah. my experience with them. All right. Ready for my daughter's question. I am. What's the selection process for Delta like? Okay. Um, so the, the, the thing that I, that I, that I want, uh, that I think she'd be interested in hearing, and this, this goes back to this argument of who's better, right? Who's better, the Navy SEALs or Delta or Special Forces or any, any, any of that kind of stuff. And, 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 I, and I am 100% uh, opinion that Delta is, is by far the pinnacle, okay? And, and I've experienced a bunch of these. But um, I believe in apologetics, right? Also, as, as a believer, I can't just point at what the Bible says. There's, there's logic to everything. There's a math problem, things that you can figure out. So when, when you are, Delta Force recruits from all over Department of Defense, you can be in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, Reserves, National Guard. You, you, all you have to be is part of the Department of Defense, and you can try out to be part of Delta Force. So when you're looking at the, how old is your daughter, by the way? Seventeen. What was it? Seventeen. Okay, good. All right, because if she was eleven, this whole math problem might be a little bit, you know. So again, when when you're looking at the pool of people that that Delta Force pulls from, it's millions. Okay. So that, that's the base that we stand on, that we stand on. And then you begin to winnow, you know, winnow that all the way up to the top. Now, when you take the SEAL Team 6, which is a remarkable unit, don't get me wrong, remarkable unit, they pull all of their people off of the already established SEAL teams. So they have about a three, four or 5,000 pool of people that they pull from to create SEAL Team 6. So all you got to do is the math is what what is the likelihood that you're going to get a better product when you're pulling from millions or you're pulling from a couple of thousands. So that's the very first thing to understand. And I I have met people in the unit that were cooks or aircraft mechanics or secretaries in the Air Force. So it is it, it, it is an incredible group of people. It this, the same thing goes for our support network. Not what what makes Delta what it is is not just the operator, which is the base. Like we, everything is 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 circled around that assaulter, that 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 operator, you know. But that support network from finance to HR to the cover program to logistics to all all of that, all of those people are assessed and selected as well. So not only does Delta have the most capable assaulters. We've got the best Intel people. We've got the best drivers. We've got the best EOD. We've got the best electricians. We've got the best cooks. So it's 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 just this group of people that has a level of just excellence, you know, that I think is is unmatched. Um, and I, I wish everybody that was interested could just take a walk through the unit, you know, because the the the, the unit itself is is so. Um, Oh, the word just fell out of my head. It's it's so specifically built for efficiency. Nothing is shiny. Nothing is polished. Everything is is built so that it works quickly, smoothly, and efficiently. 
to get the right person in the right place at the right time with the right information and the right equipment to succeed. You know what I mean? And it, it's really something fascinating to see. So the, the, the pool is huge. Um, anybody can apply. So the, the, the process is you just go to a recruiter, you tell them you're interested, you fill out a, a, an assessment form, and then you have to just do a PT test. So you have to pass a PT test. That's, that's the very first thing. So when you pass a PT test and you, and you're, and you have your uh, assessment packet um, approved, then you can come to the uh, selection program, which is run twice a year, one in the spring, one in the fall. I don't remember if they do psychological stuff prior to the um, the actual uh, selection program, but you do a lot of psychological tests. And one, that's to weed out the weirdos. Uh, but the other one is that you find out later is if you pass all the physical stuff, they're taking all of this information that you gave them in these psychological reports <laughs> And they use it against you. You know what I mean? It's it's absolutely brilliant. So you know, you know, they they just they they ask you all these hypothetical questions. You know, the the ones that everybody that everybody hears about, right? Oh, the shepherd boy. You know, your 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 hindsight is seen by the shepherd boy, and he's going to run back and tell the village, "Do you kill him?" You know what I mean? And you, however you answer, yay or nay or expound upon that. Oh, you're going to see that again if you make it through all the physical stuff. So you you show up there at the site, and it's it's uh, it. They, what I also think she'll find fascinating is there's nothing like it in the world because they want to be able to evaluate an applicant from today in 2023 to that applicant from 1983. And in order to do that, there, there are some constants. So the routes we walk are the same routes that they walked in, in the, in the early eighties. So I can measure my times against someone else's times and they take into consideration you know the weather and all that type of stuff but 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 the, the, it's it's all it's all the same they go through the pains of the instructors memorizing the courses that they give you verbatim mm. so if if someone in my if my troop was assisting with this with the selection program the guys in my troop if they were if they were going to teach map reading they memorized the map reading course that was established in the early eighties verbatim. Wow. And they didn't, they don't, they don't come off script. Like you can't ask questions and, and have them elaborate. That's not allowed. Again, it's because if you have a really good map instructor or a really good instructor in year 2023 and, and 2024, he sucks. You're going to skew your results. Right? So I, again, I just want to, I want, I want your daughter to, to, to realize this. Every single class is is memorized verbatim. Wow. And they don't veer off the script. And they teach you everything from how to take care of your feet, how to put on your boots, how to tie your boots, how to read a map, how to read a compass. Again, it's designed because if you're if you're a secretary in the Coast Guard, how do they measure you against a guy like me that was a Ranger Special Forces guy? who's a rucking land navin fool. You know what I mean? Right. So that I, you go all the way back into, here's a map. Here's what the colors on the map mean. So you spend a couple of weeks then just teaching you everything. Now, of course, that person who's not experienced isn't going to get to the level that, that I'm at, but at least there's a level playing field. You know what I mean? Where, where, where they can't tell you, they didn't tell you, you know? 
So I found I find that actually fascinating. The first couple of weeks is nothing but instruction. And then the, the cadre walk you through everything. They lead you through everything. And then you're on your own. Um, and it really is individual decision making. You never know what you're doing that day. You never know how far you're expected to move or how fast you're expected to move. <coughs> you are not allowed to talk to any other students. Um, so like it, they, are, they really are looking at you as, as an individual and your ability to just endure largely carrying something heavy on your back miles and miles through through the woods in, in that in that ambiguity. Um, and then when you when you make it through all of those physical things and really it's it's about a week where people get weeded out. So, you know, I, I kind of laugh at this and anyone who, from the unit who is listening, they, they get it. Like when someone says, oh, I made it to the last week. Yeah, everyone does. Like, you know, what? nobody gets dropped. You know, what I mean, unless you can't pass a PT test or you quit, nobody really gets dropped until the last week. And most people don't really get dropped until the last three or four days. So like when someone tells you, oh, man. I made it to the last, you know, to the second to the last day of selection. Yeah, man, most people do. That's really where the cutting occurs is right at the end. Um, but when you do make it through all of that, you then go to a board and they they kind of, um, they they just test your ability. And, and, and largely what, again, I think is interesting that they're looking for, and this is, this is something that your 17 year old should, should, should listen to also. They're looking for your resoluteness to stand upon those things that really are meaningful to you. And they're also looking at your flexibility to adapt with those things that maybe aren't that meaningful to you. You know what I mean? Like, like if you're, if you're a, a, a Christian and they start attacking your beliefs and you start wavering, that's not good. You know what I mean? If you're an atheist and they start attacking your beliefs and you start wavering, that's not good. Cause like they, they want to know that, that, that you stand by, by this character, you know? Now, if there's something that you really don't have much thought about, you know, and they really are trying to lead you into a, into a place of, of understanding and awareness and you don't take that those breadcrumbs, that's also something that they're looking at. Um, so I, th that's something where, you know, I, I pride myself on being an opinionated person and I will share my opinion with you. But I also pride myself on the fact that it's my humble opinion. You know, it's based on this experience and this understanding, but it's just my opinion and I might be wrong. You know, yeah. and I think that's that's the kind of person that they're looking for. Um, so it's it's all very, very much individually assessed in this course. And then when you go to the operator training course, now you move to Fort Bragg and you're in the operator training course for about a year, year and a half. And that's where they really turn you into this assaulter. So now you're learning how they do close quarters battle and they and they ramp up the complexity and the pressure very 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 rapidly um because you you have to when you when you move over they call it crossing the hall because the training wing is on one side of the hall the operational wing is on the other when you cross the hall you have to be able to integrate in, into that group right um and that's what i think is interesting is you may be a Ranger Special Forces qualified CQB expert, and you might have a much harder time in OTC because they need you to do it a certain way versus that aircraft mechanic who's never done CQB before. He doesn't have any bad habits to break and then relearn, you know? So uh, I think that was some of the, some of the, some of the biggest things that, that we've seen. Uh, the other thing I would say is 
Um, if for some reason you don't pass the physical qualifications, you make a mistake or you're too slow or something else doesn't happen in, in the close quarters battle. If you're a good person and you're smart and dedicated, there are all sorts of, of jobs in the building that they have for you. So, you know, um, the long answer, but, you know, for, for your daughter, they're, they're looking at this whole thing called Delta Force. And it's that's an assaulter. That's a support guy. That's an Intel network. That's outside of the box thinking. That's legit, that's all this stuff. So all of these people are, are, are brought into this oversight assessment and selection. And then they're trying to put you in the right spot. Um, one of the things that they used to say that I, I, I'm sure they still say is they're not necessarily looking for the best guy. They're looking for the right guy. Yeah. You know, and and um, those are lessons that I've, I've definitely taken with me as I've created teams in the civilian world. No, it's a great answer. Uh, Jeff, I got about maybe 10 minutes left and I want to have you back if, if you'll join me again, because there's a lot more to talk about here. Uh, but before we close, let's uh, let's talk about your book. Yeah. Uh, so I, I have it. Yeah. So th this is I, I have it in my hands. Dude, look how thick this is. I couldn't believe it. Now, it's a it's an it's an easy read. You know, it's wide spaces. I got a couple pictures in there. Uh, it's 90,000 words. But when I when I was writing this, you know, I was asked I was talking to my publisher and stuff. I was like, hey, what is 90,000 words? And they're like, oh, it's about 250 pages, 300. Because I, I wanted this to be a book that wasn't. Um, intimidating to anybody. You know what I mean? Like, like someone would pick it up and it, it's designed. Each chapter is designed to, to read on the toilet. Right. So a good, you know, you, you take a good bowel movement, you read a whole chapter, you know, and it, it, it opens and closes. There's a, there's a finite kind of story and, and, and theme in each story. They're, they're related, but it really is. It's designed for you to be able to pick it up and put it down. And uh, it, it, it began with my experience in Israel, I was I was in Israel, and I and I've again, I, like I said, I went to private schools, Christian schools. I've been a follower of Jesus and a, and a Bible fanatic all my life. Um, and when I went to Israel, and I started to walk the ground that I had read about, and see those places, and 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 hear some of these stories that I'd been told, that I that lo and behold, I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. That, that can't be right. There's got to be more here. So are, are you a Bible guy, Paul? I am. So pick a, pick a story. It can, it can be Old Testament or New Testament, but, but, but pick a story that you like or that you remember is meaningful. It may or may not be in my book, but I, but I like to play this game because it, it, uh, you'll, you'll see. When God spoke to Abraham and effectively chose uh, the Jewish people as the chosen people. Oh, dude, I, I, I can't answer that one because that's going to be in book two. All right, that's, that's going to be in book two. And that one, dude, that one gets crazy. So let me uh, let me let me let me punt that one because I'm actually write the second book. You, you give me um, one that's top of mind from from your first book. No, pick another. Pick another. There's no way you're going to pick another one that I'm not going to hit. Uh, Jonah and the whale. Okay, Jonah and the whale. It's not in my book. But let me see what I've got here. Well, here's an interesting thing. Okay, here's an interesting piece. Um, it's not in my book, but this is but this is one of those pieces. So when you when you look at, at at Jonah, he left from Jaffa, and you can go to Jaffa in Israel, Yafo. That city exists, right? And and God told him to go to Nineveh. Do you know where Nineveh is? I don't. Nineveh is in Mosul. Uh, Nineveh is Mosul. 
So when you when you go to Mosul, <clears throat> there are, there are the ruins of Nineveh. So inside Mosul, there's this this area, and it 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 looks it almost looks like a garbage dump. It's just these heaps of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's old Nineveh. So when when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was that way, he gets on a boat and he goes that way, right? So like even when you're looking at this from geography. You know, you're reading the stories in the Bible. You don't know where these places are. But when you look at it at a map, like a soldier, you do your map recon. You're like, well, that son of a gun. God told him to go that way. And he went that way, you know. And then when you go to Nineveh and you go to Mosul and it talks about Jonah sitting on some of the overlooks at the city, you know, because he he prays for the city and the city repents and God doesn't destroy Nineveh. And then Jonah's conflicted. Because he's kind of happy that God didn't destroy Nineveh, but he's also a little bit jealous because he's like, what? These people get to be saved? You know what I mean? After all of that they've done. So when you go to Mosul and you see Nineveh, you can look around. There are only a couple of hills. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, so you can you can look at these hills and go, oh, Jonah must have been sitting there or must have been, you know what I mean? Like you can you can you can really zero in on these experiences. You know, so that's a lot of what my book is, is where David killed Goliath and where he hid from Saul and Bethlehem and what that looked like and Jesus' crucifixion and and all of these locations that are anchored in truth uh, and some of these other locations that are anchored in tradition. You know, there there's when you go to Israel, like the the, the Via Dolorosa are these nine stages of the cross that they that they commemorate when Jesus was tried um, in in front of the assembly of, of Pilate and then marched to uh, Golgotha to be crucified. All, most of those sites are commemorative, right? Because the actual Jerusalem is 30 meters below it. You know, you're, you, you, he, he never really walked there. When you go to the, the one of the stations where it's it's a handprint, it's Jesus' hand in the wall. Well, it, it, that's not real. It didn't really happen there. You know what I mean? But but for thousands of years, we've commemorated that. But where they are talking about where Jesus was crucified and buried, that's it. The Praetorium, where he was tried by Pilate, that's it. Where he was thrown into the dungeon when he was first tried by the Sanhedrin in Caiaphas's house, the, there, there's two or there, the dungeons are there. Like I think there's two or three of them. Like he was in one of those, you know. So when you when you're anchoring geography with your faith, it's amazing. Um, and then all these little things that pop up that uh, really add a, add a seasoning and and a, and, a, and a truth to it. Um, so I, I started, that's how the book started was, was these experiences that I had in Israel, what I thought was truth or not truth, what became tradition or legend or things that had fallen away. Um, and that's how it started. And then I began to weave in these stories, like when, you know, these stories of betrayal, you know, or facing your own giants or fear, all these, all, all these human experiences that we go through, I started weaving in my own military stories. And that's how I found this rhythm of a Bible story that, that most people know kind of aspects to it that you, that you, most people don't know, or they have forgotten. And then kind of how that has had related to me in my life, um, in my time as a soldier. And it was, a it was a, it was a cathartic experience. I didn't realize it. Um, and I'm telling you now, my sons are reading it. And, I, and I, I did come to the realization at some point, and people, when you write a book, people tell you, you need to zero in on your target audience. You know what I mean? And while it's a book about my faith, 
I didn't want to alienate other faiths. I have great respect for these other traditions, you know, Islam and Buddhism and all, all these other traditions. I have great respect for them. Um, but they, they tell you, 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 you need to zero it in on that person. And it took me a long time to figure out, but I realized I, I'm, I wrote this book for my sons, you know, and they, and it's, and it's, and it's men in their mid twenties who have a bit of a faith tradition, but they're not inspired by it. And they're, and they're finding it weak and they're not relating to it and they're not identifying with it. You know, those, those are my boys. Um, and you and I probably both went through that same type of experience in our early to mid twenties. It's just, it's just kind of that thing. So I, I realized who I wrote that book for and the fact that it's in their hands right now and they're reading it and it's being meaningful to them is um, it's mission accomplished. I don't know if anyone else will ever read it, Paul, but, but my boys, my boys are reading it. <laughs> Let me try to help you. What's the name of the book again? The title? It's called Where Have All the Heroes Gone? A Pilgrimage Through the Bible, the Battlefield and Back Home Again. And it will be it'll be for sale here any day now. I, th this this copy that I have is the proof. You can see it's a little bit off center, right? You can see how the, the words are off over here. Yeah. So I'm expecting a copy back tomorrow with everything centered, and then it and then I'll launch it, and it'll be available for pre-sales for a couple weeks. I taped the audio version, um, so there'll be an audio version, there'll be a, a an e version, and then a hard copy version ready for for folks shortly. You did the narration for the audio. I did, and uh, that was really fun. And I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to share this also because I'm not a writer, right? Like I, I'm a I'm a talker, if you can't tell by the podcast, I'm a talker. But that but that's what we make in the military. We make we make people we're briefers. My, my half of my job as a Ranger, Special Forces, and Delta officer was to sell the mission. You know, to sell my guys are the right guys for the mission. You know, and 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 vice versa. So I, I wrote the book in a in a in a very kind of audio way, like like you and I are talking. You know, every, it's it's kind of shorter sentences. Um, it's you know it's it's designed for talking. And and in one of these workshops that I went through, they tell you one of their advice pieces of advice is when you've written the the, the manuscript, read it aloud to somebody. Like literally sit there and read it aloud, and you'll find how things get choppy or they don't flow because you've written it a particular way, but it, it is, it, it's not read that way. And, and Paul, I, I took a shortcut. I, I was just like, I'm not doing that. Like that, that's taken way too long. So I, I fully expected because other friends of mine had told me that they experienced this. They went in to record their books and they were like, ah, I shouldn't have said it that way. And it was quite the opposite. I, I realized that I, I did write this for a young man in his 20s. It's written like we're talking. It's written in, in an audio version. And I really, I really had a good time recording it. And in fact, the, the only thing that I would criticize, but it really isn't a criticism, is I also like the elicitation. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, um, please pass the pickled peppers. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like, like there's like almost like a I, there, there's a bunch of like intentional lines in there that have this alliteration that I played with and it's hard to say you know I mean like when you read it in your mind you go through it but there were a couple places where I'm doing the audio version and I had to really slow down and and say it because it's almost like a tongue twister so it, you know doing doing the audio version really highlighted to me 
who I am as a writer, how I write. Don't give that up. Have fun. Um, and then it, it, it also, it, I, I know, Paul, if you get a chance to read this, what, what you're going to be hearing in your head as you're reading it is what I want to communicate. You know, it might not be quite the highs and lows or the punctuation right where I want it, but, but I feel really happy that when you sit to read it, it's going to be the way I want you to hear it. You know, I mean, you're going to kind of hear my voice, even if it's not the audio version, you know. No, that, that's awesome. Uh, one of the things you and I were talking about uh, when we spoke a few weeks ago was um, I, I don't know how big of an influence this was. It, maybe I'm misremembering our conversation, but uh, veterans and suicide oh. seems to have a, a, a much broader impact than it's ever had, at least in yeah. our gener- for our generation. Um, so if you could just talk about that, because I, the most resilient people in the, in the world are arguably Delta force guys and it's starting to impact your ranks too. Well, and this, and, and this was a huge reason for writing this book. You know, I, I, in a perfect world, I will never have to say the word Delta. We'll never have to talk about it. Like it, it, it can just be its own little thing, right. The, the, and the, the quiet professionals that work there, but my, fr- I've got friends that are killing themselves. And, and I don't fully understand why. And I think I know some of the fringe reasons, right? And, and, I, and I write about those. You know what I mean? I write about the frustrations. My, my frustrations were not with our enemies. Like bad guys are going to do bad guy shit, right? Like I don't, I don't mind Al-Qaeda. I don't mind ISIS. Like that's, they were the black hats. We're the good guys with it. Like that, that's the way the world is. But it's the apathy and it's the friction and it's the lack of trust from commanders and you know what I mean the, the 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 bureaucracy that gets in the way. So I, you know, I was I was very very cautious and I, and I pushed this through the unit to get approval um, for to to print it. You know, because the last thing I want to do is betray my my mates, right? Like I, there, I don't there is nothing in there that is some sort of operational secret or anything to that degree. Um, but but I do speak poorly of some leadership. You know, I speak poorly of some decision making. You know, I, I I still have some angst on on things that resulted in some of my friends getting hurt or killed because of superior officers that were ambitious and self centered. You know, so I I want to share my experience because I think it it can provide a little bit of healing for some of these other guys. I, I know there are other soldiers that will read this and they'll be like. Oh, I get it. And oh, I'm not alone. And oh, are we able to talk about this? Again, it's not a it's not an operational secret, but it's like it's it's the it's the secret of being a soldier. Like betrayal sucks, man. You know, failing sucks. The fear sucks. The overconfidence sucks. Like that's the kind of space that I'm trying to create for for guys and gals to be able to be able to talk about and, and don't hold that in. So I I hope. I hope that I've achieved that. You know, this is my first book. I'm, I'm going to write a sequel and I'm, and I'm going to, I'm going to try even harder to, to get to, to get to some of that as well. So, you know, and again, like you said, my, my boys are reading it mission accomplished. If there's a, if, if there's a, a fellow soldier out there that reads it and it gives them one more piece of inspiration or hope to hold on. then it was worth it. Yeah, you'll you'll never know, but you're putting that uh, positivity and that goodness out into the the world, and I'm sure it's it's going to have that effect. You just, you probably won't know about it. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, hey, look, I, I definitely want to have you back. I want to talk about what you're doing today with your nonprofit, uh, yep. Skull Games. And I want to talk about uh, Delta in a little more depth and, and breadth, uh, perhaps. And I'm sure there's some other things we could talk about. Uh, I, I enjoy talking to you, Jeff. I really appreciate all Dude. your service to our country. It's uh, quite the uh, the history you have. That went so fast. But yes, let, let's do a part two. And it, because all, all of this was prelude to what we're doing now. All of these lessons we've talked about my identity as a soldier, free the oppressed, a protector, stick up for others. That's what we're doing now in the counter sex trafficking space in Skull Games. And once again, I don't mind the traffickers. I don't mind the pimps. I don't mind the abusers. It, it's the apathy of, of all these people that want to, you know, tell you how you're doing it wrong or, or not support it. Those, those are the things that weigh heavily on me. So this is a perfect part one to talk about kind of this next phase. And I think it would actually be good um, because I have found a way to reinvent myself and find a new passion and purpose. And that's the other thing that our veterans need. You know, that, that uniform meant a lot to me. It was my identity from a, from a, a 17 year old until, you know, what was I 45 or something when I retired close to 50, I don't even know. Um, so you, you have to find a new identity many times and a new passion and purpose and uh, people that you can work with and trust. Yeah. Love it. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate you doing this. And I, I, we're definitely going to schedule another one soon. Uh, and this one I'm going to try to put out around Veterans Day. Oh, that would be perfect. Yeah. And by then that this this book will be up for sale. Uh, um, where uh, where have all the heroes gone dot com will be the website for it. I think Jeff dot com will be a website for it. Uh, I've got a leadership course that uh, that uh, talks about the old Remember the old be, know and do style of leadership yeah it's, it it goes through that you know that i was taught as a corporal um so there's a bunch of opportunity and and, and resources for people to, to learn more love it thanks jeff thanks paul god bless you brother thank you for listening if you enjoy this episode please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts we'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us you can find us at scodopodcast.com.